0: So far in this study, we've picked up the dominant theme of the sovereignty of God. Uh, The Bible isn't uh, a systematic theology textbook. It's theology that's played out in real life and in history. And in Daniel, we've been tracing the sovereignty of God, particularly in the lives of Daniel and in Nebuchadnezzar, the king. That's the main theme so far. God is sovereign over kings over kingdoms, and the course of history. And that is a great comfort, not just for exiled Israel, uh, but for us as well. As we are strangers and aliens in a foreign land, uh, we belong to a better country, and we look forward to the promise of our inheritance in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we've also seen in Daniel that God is sovereign over the will and the mind of man. Uh, Just last week we saw God take away reason from King Nebuchadnezzar and make his mind like that of an animal. And then the Lord graciously returned his mind to him with the added bonus of seeing and savoring the glory of the God of Israel and delighting in his sovereign dominion and the exercise of his will among all the inhabitants of the earth. And so Nebuchadnezzar in spite of all his wickedness, was made into a true worshiper. He was fashioned by God into a true worshiper um, for his glory. But as we come to chapter 5, we fast forward 23 years, and there is a new king in Babylon introduced to us in verse 1 as King Belshazzar. And it's kind of like deja vu. Here is another proud pagan king who also scoffs at the God of Israel, who also receives divine revelation, who also is terrified by that revelation, who also cannot understand the revelation apart from Daniel, and who also does not repent after receiving the revelation. But one is saved, and the other, as we'll see, is judged Out of the same fallen lump of clay, one is made into a vessel of mercy, and the other is prepared as a vessel for destruction. God is sovereign to save and to judge, to make a worshiper for his glory, and to dispense justice for his glory. And so this theme of sovereign judgment is prominent in chapter 5 of Daniel. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of evil. The day of uh, Babylon has come. Uh, Their days are coming to an end. It's time for them to be judged. The 70 years which God has ordained for Israel to be in exile is finally coming to an end. The great Babylon has merely been an instrument in God's hand to carry out his judgment upon his own people, Israel. And yet, Babylon will be judged for what they freely and willingly did to God's people. Listen to Jeremiah 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you, Israel, have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send... For all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction, and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Jump to verse 11, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. In other words, God will use Babylon as his instrument to carry out his punishment, his judgment on Israel for their rebellion and unbelief. Everything that happens to Israel is from God. Look what it says, though, in the very next verse. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. God says, my purpose in all of this is good. Yours is evil. I meant all of this for good. You meant it for evil. And as I've said, the main theme in Daniel is God's sovereignty. But just how sovereign is God? Is there a limit to his sovereignty? Now, it's often the case that well-meaning Christians unintentionally Limit the sovereignty of God to somehow protect God from any appearance of evil. And I get it. But God does not need or want defending. On the contrary, he he boldly proclaims in his word that he is sovereign over everything. Over sin, evil, calamity, illness, injury, all that is good, and everything that transpires in all of creation. I like what the Westminster Confession says. It says, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And get that in your mind. Whatever comes to pass has been ordained by God. Whatever happens in time and space has been ordained, decreed by God. A.W. Pink said it this way, Whatever was done in time was foreordained before time began. That's how sovereign God is. Lamentations 3.38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and evil go forth? God decreed all things, both good and evil, and yet he is not chargeable for evil. The greatest sin, the greatest sin ever committed in all of human history is actually the thing that is the greatest and most glorious good that was committed in all of human history, and that is the murder of the Son of God. Look at Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Every one of them meant it for evil. They wanted to crucify Jesus the Nazarene, but God meant it for good. Scripture makes no attempt to try to explain how God is completely sovereign. And at the same time, man is fully responsible for their actions. And Scripture makes no apologies for holding these two parallel truths together. And they intersect in the mind of God, not our minds, And that's a glory to Him. Isaiah 45. That people may know. What What does God want us to know? That people may know that from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The Lord is sovereign over all things, period, from light to darkness. There's no chance, there's no accidents, there's no fate, and particularly in this event with the fall of Babylon, the Lord has made very clear, especially in the book of Jeremiah, that everything that has happened is from him, and yet Babylon will be judged for what it freely did to Israel. Now, some will say that God in his sovereignty has chosen not to intervene in our free wills, as if somehow that is loving. But if my will is bound in sin and is heading straight for destruction and for misery and for torment and for judgment, uh, then, Lord, by any means necessary, violate my will. Give me a new heart and put a new spirit within me and cause me to walk in your ways. Give me holy and sanctified affections so that I hate my sin and love righteousness and love Christ. It's a grace of God to change our wills and to change our desires to make us entirely new in the inner man. This is the promise of the new covenant. This is why we pray at all. I mean, Lord, change my heart. Lord, change his heart. Change her will. That's how we pray. Imagine how you'd pray if God was not sovereign. Uh, Lord, mm, somehow work this out without intervening in their minds, in their hearts. I don't know how you would. Guys, it's not loving for God to give you the freedom to do whatever your heart desires. That's not loving. When God does that, when he gives you over to your own way, listen, that's his judgment not his kindness. That is the demonstration of his wrath over you. As Romans 1 says, the most loving thing that God can do is to crucify you and to make you a new creation entirely and one that treasures Christ above all else. And that doesn't come naturally to us. And so we saw in Daniel chapter 4 last week that Nebuchadnezzar praised God for humbling him and giving him eyes to see and to delight in God's sovereignty. And far from saying it was unjust or, or wrong for God to violate his will, he says all his ways are just. And as we come to chapter 5, we need to keep in mind what Israel should have kept in mind. The sovereign Lord of heaven and earth is still on his throne. God is in control of every detail of life and particularly their exile. Uh, God works all things according to the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11, and that even the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes, Proverbs 21.1. And so there's nothing holding God back from keeping his covenant promises to Israel. How many of you have memorized Jeremiah 29.11? For I know the plans I have for you. I see some hands. Yeah, I have more hands now. Okay, did you really memorize it? Uh, Well, here it is in context. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. This is a promise for the nation of Israel. So now when people ask you, or when people quote this, this verse to you, you can say, well actually in the context, you see, uh, this is for the, and you could be that guy that corrects people. And uh, you can edify your brother and sisters in Christ. Now Daniel has been exiled for nearly 70 years, and so he's, he's an old man now. And he knows that the days of Babylon are coming to an end. God revealed it in chapter 2. God revealed it to him personally in chapters 7 to 8, which occur chronologically before or in between chapters 4 and 5. God revealed it uh, through Jeremiah 50 years prior, and he revealed it through Isaiah 150 years prior. So judgment is not just imminent, it is certain for Babylon at this point. God's word cannot fail. There's no hand to hold him back. He will be true to his word, and he will bring about all the good that he's promised to Israel. That's the context. Now, there's too much in chapter 5 to cover in just one sermon, so we'll get as far as we can, which I can tell you right now is not very far, and uh, we'll finish up next week Lord willing. But in this chapter, there are four elements of sovereign judgment. Four elements of sovereign judgment, and I'll give you the roadmap ahead of time so you can, you can see where we're going. Uh, these are the four elements, uh, judgment deserved, judgment decreed, judgment declared, and judgment delivered. Let's start with the first one. Now, when I say judgment deserved, uh, I don't mean that Belshazzar, who's the main character in this chapter, didn't deserve judgment prior to this, as if to say, "Okay, now he deserves judgment. Now he's crossed a line." Uh, no, uh, all of us has has lived over that line since the day we were born. And the Word of God says, uh, "He who does not believe is judged already." John three eighteen. What I mean by judgment deserved is that God makes it plain to us in this text that when he finally brings judgment, it is glorious. We are made to feel that it is well-deserved. And God gets glory when he vindicates his great name, which has been profaned. Now, in verse 1, immediately we're introduced to a new character, King Belshazzar, and who happens to be Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And for years, so-called scholars celebrated the fact that there is no mention of Belshazzar uh, in any historical documents apart from the Bible. And so historians concluded from that, that Belshazzar never existed, and that at least this portion of scripture is fictional and can't be trusted. Well, all that changed uh, in 1854 when an archaeologist discovered what we call the Nabonidus Cylinder, Uh, Nabonidus is Belshazzar's father and co-regent in Babylon. So he's the king. Uh, So this is actually a prayer from Nabonidus to his God. And it says this, As for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great Godhead and grant me as a present a life long of days. And as for Belshazzar, whoa, my eldest son, my offspring, Instill reverence for your great Godhead in his heart, and may he not commit any cultic mistake. May he be sated with a life of plenitude. Well, Nabonidus' God did not answer that prayer because Belshazzar would arguably make the biggest cultic mistake in history. In any case, since then, we've found uh, no less than 37 other historical artifacts and documents that attest. To the historicity of Belshazzar. And all that to say, don't wait for archaeology to catch up to the Bible before you believe the Bible. Uh, The Word of God is true from beginning to end, and you can trust what it says. Now, let me set the scene for us. Uh, The year is 539 BC in chapter 5, verse 1. The date, uh, October 12th. Uh, History is very clear on this. Event. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to conquer Babylon. Uh, Nabonidus had already gone forth from Babylon to fight uh, the Persian army, and he's been captured. The whole surrounding city, uh, the territory um, of Babylon, has been captured and conquered. Uh, The Persian army is right outside the gates of the city now. And the only thing standing between Belshazzar uh, and his defeat. And the fall of Babylon are these massive walls and fortifications. And so, what does Belshazzar do? Verse 1, this is what he does. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Let me actually take a drink in front of you all. (coughs) It's not wine. (coughs) Excuse me. So he's having, he's having a party, so to speak. And the question is, why? Why in the world do you think, excuse me, right now is the perfect time to uh, what we would, to have what we call a drunken orgy? Which is why you have in verse 2 his wives and his concubines there. This isn't your neighborhood potluck. Uh, I'll spare you the details of what typically goes on in this kind of event. But they are essentially giving themselves over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity. That's what's going on. Or rather, I should say, God has given them over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity. Let me take one more sip here. There's a frog in there. And just a note on that. When God gives man over, you can imagine it like this. This is a good picture that has helped me. Uh, It's like the sun departing. The sun in the sky, the sun departing and refusing to shine and give its light and its warmth. Now, certainly it can't be said that the sun is the effectual cause of, of darkness and the cold. It's just the opposite. It gives light and warmth. Um, and in the same way, it can't be said that God is the effectual cause of sin and evil. So when God removes a measure of his restraining grace... Uh, man's sinful nature just tends further and further into darkness and depravity. Uh, Just as gravity naturally pulls us down, so sin, were it not for the hand of God holding us up, would naturally just fall down. Uh, In other words, these Chaldeans are already under God's judgment. They're already under his wrath because they are engaged in this act. He is giving themselves over to the lusts of their heart, and this kind of revelry is not a "let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die" uh, kind of thing. No, this is far from that. This is a, a boast and a taunt. Belshazzar had complete confidence in these walls of Babylon. According to Herodotus, Babylon had walls that were eighty-seven feet thick, three hundred fifty feet high, and with a hundred bronze gates in the walls. So, really, no one is getting through these walls. Uh, And you say, what about food and water? Well, they got that covered. The Euphrates River just happens to flow right through the city of Babylon. And they got uh, walls on each side of the river to protect the city from attack from the river. And uh, apparently, they had enough food to last them up to 70 years. So, Belshazzar, right now, is up on his high place for all to see. The lords are very encouraged to, to see their king so proud and secure, even though all this is going on. Uh, he had great confidence in these walls, but let's see that he also had confidence in his gods. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, uh, which probably means he could have cared less at this point what the wine tasted like, Uh, He commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So what's going on here? Why did Belshazzar ask for the vessels from God's temple, the temple of God in Jerusalem? Did they run out of cups, red solo cups? No. Uh, Belshazzar deliberately scorns the God of Israel. Twice it's mentioned in this text that these vessels were from the temple the house of God in Jerusalem. So when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, this was a long time ago, he gathered up those vessels and placed them securely in Babylon. They have not been used or touched in 65 years. Uh, And that's in keeping with the normal sense of propriety. Uh, It was understood that you wanted to gather up as many gods on your side as possible to receive as many blessings as possible. So no one in their right mind, would think of purposefully provoking any of the gods to wrath. You just don't do that. But Belshazzar intentionally blasphemes the name of Yahweh and profanes that which has been declared holy, set apart for the worship of God alone. Rather than being used for the worship and adoration of God, these sacred vessels were used licentiously to exalt the idols of Babylon. And so, Belshazzar purposefully inflicts this insult on the God of Judah. And the question is, why did he do that? And why right now, out of all the days, he could have done that? Well, Belshazzar may have known about the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the prediction that Babylon would be overthrown uh, by another kingdom in chapter 2 of Daniel. Uh, And much like Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue, this may be his way of despising that prophecy. And perhaps he knew about Isaiah's prophecy about Cyrus or Jeremiah's prophecy about the destruction of Babylon. Uh, In verse 2 of Daniel 5, Daniel indicts Belshazzar because he knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar and that the God of Israel did it. Let's actually look at it right now. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all this. And we'll see more of that next week. But Belshazzar says, in effect, God, you may have humbled Nebuchadnezzar, but you will never conquer me. I mean, look at these walls. There's no way you're getting through to me. But there's another reason why Belshazzar uh, was not content with the pleasure this feast afforded and relished to openly pour contempt upon God. We know in Romans 1.28 that God, uh, when God's judgment is already over you, he will give you over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. That's what's going on here. He's been given over not just to the lusts of his heart, but to a depraved mind, to the contempt of God, outward contempt of God. And that's the sign of God's judgment already over him. And friends, if you are living, an unrepentant sin. Without any godly sorrow or fatherly discipline, take heed to yourself. When God lets you have your sin day after day after day, that is an indication that his wrath is already over you. And the only reason that you've not dropped into hell already is because God's hand holds you up. God certainly delights in redeeming sinners and displaying the glory of his grace, but he also wills to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, as Justin read for us this morning in Romans 9. Now, notice that Daniel doesn't mention the name of any of their gods. He just mentions what they're made of. uh, Gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In other words, These gods are dead. There is no life in them. So while mocking the true and living God, these pagans, these Babylonians, are are praising and worshiping lifeless gods, fantasies of man's imagination. Now, hopefully, someone is sober enough to realize what the king is doing. And hopefully, someone will stop this foolish idea and say, what are you doing? O king, live forever. Uh, You are intentionally provoking the God of Judah. Have you not heard about this God and what he's done to nations? He lets people have Israel, and then he punishes them for it. Have you not heard about this God? Well, instead, they all go along with this blasphemy. And why is that? Ultimately, because it was decreed. Jeremiah 51, God says, I will make drunk her officials and her wise men, her governors her commanders, and her warriors. They shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And so as they willingly engage in this revelry, they are drinking themselves deeper and deeper into that prophecy. They don't realize that as they hold God's golden cups in their hands, they are being held in God's hand for judgment. Let's see. There you go. There it is. Look at the last phrase there. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord. Let's see. And notice too, that despite having lost their sense of morality and reason, they are still worshiping. They're still worshiping. They drink and they praise and they drink and they praise. That's, that's the, that's the uh, sense in the Hebrew that we get. This is just an ongoing thing. The more they drink, the more they praise. Uh, and that's because sinful, depraved men still worship what is false. We love worshiping what is false. We love giving ourselves over to that which is folly. Uh, Jesus said, I think I had it up you already, in John 3, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. The world knows that deity does not reside in pieces of wood. But they hate the light and love the darkness, and so they invent every kind of religious and philosophical deception to get them far away from the true God, and all while feigning religiosity and ignorance of the true God. False religion and false worship is not noble or to be tolerated. It is done at the very dregs of human depravity. And so, Belshazzar trusts in his wall, and he trusts in his gods, and he has so much faith in these things that he purposefully he invites God's judgment. Psalm 10 presents a, a good picture of what's going on here in Belshazzar's heart. The wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says in his heart, I will not be shaken. From generation to generation, I will not be in adversity. Verse 13 asks, why has the wicked spurned God? Answer, he has said in his heart, you will not require it. So Belshazzar Comfortable in his sin and defiance, says to himself, God will not bring me into judgment. I have done wickedly my whole life, and up to this point have been kept out of hell. God will not require my judgment. But What does it say in the next verse here? But you do see. For you behold mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hand. So this is, this is judgment deserved. Let's go on to... Verse 5 through 6, judgment decreed. Judgment decreed. Verse 5, immediately, in the midst of all this, immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. What a scene this must have been. You can imagine in the midst of this wicked debauchery, heads start to turn. Maybe you hear screams. Uh, The music stops. The sound of laughter dies, and everyone checks their eyes, and they look around uh, at others to see if they're seeing the same thing, and if it's not just that they're inebriated. And you can imagine that as the fear starts to sink in, that that the people would look to their king for strength and for answers. And yet, look at him. What used to be a, a red blush has turned into an ashy white. His color changed, the text says. His limbs gave way, that is to say, he lost his strength to stand. Some commentators see this as incontinence. And perhaps at this point, the only sound you can hear in the room is the sound of the king's knees shaking so hard... They're literally striking against one another. That's what the text says. Whatever Belshazzar's pleasures were in that moment became for him not just unsatisfactory, but a means of magnifying his mental anguish. It's not that he was visited by God in in the middle of some noble act of piety. Uh, No, but in the very mire of sin. And may we learn from this, always to consider, what if the Lord appeared right now, would I be put to shame and have cause for dread? Or would I be confident, a clear conscience, knowing that I'm walking in a manner worthy of Christ? So these fingers of a man's hand appeared. In the Hebrew, the word, the word means came out. And it may well be that these fingers came out of the wall that Belshazzar so trusted in. As if to remind him of what Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 4.35, that none can stay his hand. Jeremiah uh, 51.53, though Babylon should mount up to heaven, and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come from me against her, declares the Lord. There is no amount of wall you can put up to avoid my judgment. It's coming. And it says the fingers wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, meaning that it was in a place for everyone to see. It was on a white surface with a light shining on it. That is the perfect place for everyone to see it. It wasn't in a dream. It was for everyone to see. The sight of a of a hand writing on a wall is alarming. I mean, if we saw it right now, we'd we'd be like, "Okay, what's going on?" Uh, But why? did it create such a reaction in Belshazzar? I mean, he didn't even know what it said. And yet, look at him. He's, he's undone. I'll quote Hamlet. Conscience makes cowards of us all. His guilty conscience, which has up to this point been silenced, suddenly awakens as reality sets in. Belshazzar knew what he had done. The text says his thoughts alarmed him that this could well be from the God he was in the middle of profaning with, with holy vessel in hand. And I hope you see the dread this proud king felt with the mere finger of divine judgment. So consider what dread will come over those who are summoned to the very judgment throne, to the very presence of an omnipotent and wrathful God. I want to give us a picture of this. They'll be like those in Revelation 6, just a taste of the judgment to come. It says, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, that's Christ, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? No one. When unforgiven sinners come before God on the day of judgment, they will wish that they could just go out of existence, just die and exist no more, because that would be far better All they have to show for their waste of God's gift of life to them is a record of sin after sin after sin. And they have had no hope, uh, they've had no desire for a mediator. They have spurned him again and again and his offers of mercy. And so for those of you who still remain outside of Christ, all your thoughts, your words, and your actions will be brought before the throne of this holy God. They're all written in his book, he has not forgotten what, what countless sins you've already forgotten, and you will have no excuse on the day of judgment for any one of your sins. You can't turn, as many do, to their biology and say, well, it's just how I'm wired. Uh, you can't run to your past experiences and say, well, I'm just a product of this, and that's why I've wi- lived so wickedly. No one can say, God, you didn't prove to me your existence, and therefore I lived as if you didn't exist. Nor can anyone say, God, I know you're sovereign, so you made me sin when I really didn't want to. No, James 1 says God tempts no man to evil. And no one in this room can say, I didn't know you offered pardon for all my sins. So your mouth will be stopped You will know that you've chosen darkness over the light. You've chosen sin over Christ. And God will have no other use for you but to be a vessel filled with his wrath for the display of his power and for the praise of his glory. But hear this. The door of mercy is wide open to you this very moment. You can come to him with the hope of a full pardon. God delights in redeeming sinners. He loves to save and displaying his grace and his mercy and his kindness. God stands ready to forgive. You can come to Christ with the certainty that you will find a warm reception and the full forgiveness of all your sins. There will come a time when you will want a mediator to stand between you and God and one that says, Father, I've redeemed this one. I died for this one. Uh, There's no more record of sin. You see, he's been cleansed and he's wearing my righteousness as a garment. Welcome him into your kingdom. And I'll close with this. One of my favorite hymns. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off the guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me, Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. he cannot turn away the presence of of his Son. His Spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Church, we can enjoy what the world cannot And that's a clear conscience before God our Father. No longer our our judge. All our sins have been dealt with before the throne of Almighty God. There's no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's no more dread of judgment. So what freedom can we enjoy? What love can we give and what service we can render to the Lord and to his people with a clear conscience? Christ has saved me from everlasting torment it is well with my soul and i am joyfully his servant and he is my king whose dominion is everlasting friends don't silence your conscience the blood of christ hebrews 9:14 says can cleanse your conscience from dead works to free you up to serve the living god well belshazzar has nothing to hide He has nowhere to hide. Uh, The enemy is right outside the wall. And now a greater enemy has appeared within the wall that he so trusted in. And I wish I could say that the next verse tells us that the king repented. And he cried out for mercy and was saved. But sadly, we'll find that he turns to the wisdom of the world for answers. Which has proven time and time again to be of no use But we'll have to wait until next week. Uh, We got through six verses today, so we'll have to move a bit quicker next time to get through the next 25, uh, Lord willing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, how unsearchable are your judgments, how unfathomable your ways. We delight in the revelation of uh, all that you've done and all that you are in your word. Lord, we cannot fathom uh, the things that you know very well. We can't put these things together, uh, but Lord, you 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 can, and we trust in you, and we submit to it, and we adore you uh, for being God. Uh, we 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 love the sovereignty that you or the 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 salvation that you've provided in your sovereignty, God. You've redeemed us. You've you've called us your children. We thank you for the judgment that has been avoided because of the blood of Christ. Lord, we delight that we are no longer vessels of wrath, that we, we are vessels of mercy um, for the display of your glorious grace. Father, I pray that no one here would leave having come to Christ, having, having uh, uh, reckoned with their sins before you, that they would know that there's, there's a place for all their sins, all their crimes to be nailed, and that's on the cross. Father, save for your glory. Thank you for this time together. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.